Happy Friday, everybody. It is November 4th, 2022. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets live streams. I do this on Twitter Spaces and Telegram. Telegram is kind of my home base, so all these guys will be, get a chance at the end of the show to ask a question or whatever. But I'm, I've also been starting to put this out on the podcast uh, feed and on Rumble because my YouTube channel got terminated. Still haven't heard back from my appeal on that. I'll keep you guys all updated. Um, but anyway, if you're listening on Rumble or on the podcast, subscribe, give it a like, helps other people find this content. So today what we I want to talk about is just go through some charts. Bitcoin is pumping today, finally, and then go over some of the stuff that I've posted in the last, say, 12 hours on Telegram. Like I said, that's kind of my home base right now. And so a lot of my stuff that I'm reading or stuff that I'm watching uh, not just about Bitcoin, but about uh, macro or just general knowledge stuff. I, I put that on Telegram as well. So we'll cover some of those posts that I've had. And then I have a couple articles that I want to read. And these were ones that I just found over the last day that, uh, I mean, they show a way of thinking. And one of my kind of fights that I have right now is against the I would call it mainstream Bitcoiner or mainstream gold bug or I mean, maybe a mainstream alternative macro person. Okay. Uh, that's, that's my big struggle because I'm pushing back against the inflation narrative. I'm pushing back against the, a lot of the doom and gloom out there. And so these articles give me an opportunity to once again, rant about that stuff. And then at the end, I'll open it up for Q and a. So, Great to see you guys here, Dave, Jake, Point, and DT. Welcome to the Telegram. And see a couple people now on Twitter Spaces, so welcome, welcome. All right, let's dive into the charts. Um, I have posted these on Telegram this morning. But the, the Bitcoin price right now, 21206 on Bitstamp. It is a high since... When is this? September 13th. So six weeks. It's a six-week high. And even then, that at that time, back in September, it was only over this for about five days. Then if we go back further, uh, it gets back into mid-August or late August uh, that it was at these levels. So it's been, I would say, two months, over two months minus five days. And so this is a good sign. It's a very good sign. We did break out back on October 25th out of this trend line and pattern that I've been talking about for a long time, the triangle pattern. We flagged. And on the morning of the FOMC, if you guys go back and listen to that morning FOMC live stream that I was doing, uh, I said that this looked, this uh, bull flag was convincing. And I thought that it was going to break up. It made me more... Uh, it made me believe that the Fed was going to pivot, right, M even more than I had before. I still said that it was a majority chance that they would raise 75 basis points, but there would be some sort of pivot. Of course, then uh, after the whole controversy of that day, price has had come down a little bit, but that looks like a fake out. And now we're going back north. Um, 
All right, let's look at some other charts before I talk about why I think possibly this is. So let's take a look at the dollar. The dollar is falling quite dramatically today. Uh, let's go to the daily chart. I have it on the four-hour chart. Um, all right, so today it's down 1.6% so far, and that's a pretty big drop in the dollar. It didn't get back to its previous highs. So we have had now lower highs and lower lows. So I'm thinking, you know, my major thesis here is that the dollar is going to find itself range bound here for the next year or two. And we're not going to have some blow off top in the dollar. This isn't the end, right? Everybody talks about these economic situations as if it is the end of days, like some major event that's going to catalyze into world changing things is going to happen. But no, it, I mean, those, those times are so extremely rare. And mostly what we're going to see is a return to normal. Okay. They can kick the can down the road, guys. They can kick the can down the road. This is not the end of the system yet. I mean, Bitcoin is not big enough yet. So Bitcoin has to get bigger. And as Bitcoin gets bigger, it's a slow migration, right? It's not going to be a catastrophic event that makes everyone discover Bitcoin. No, they have to discover Bitcoin slowly but surely. And most likely is, you know, with technology and, and these types of things, Bitcoin isn't a, Bitcoin is a technology, but um, it's kind of a, it's a tool as well, a basic tool. So the technology usually gets adopted by the elite first, right? Like things are luxury items. And then over a decade or two, they become for the common person. You know, they, they have economies of scale. They uh, decrease with uh, the costs, with competition and supply chains and things uh, make it more efficient to make these luxury items into everyday items. That's the same kind of way I expect Bitcoin to be adopted, uh, at least by the masses. So first, it's going to be the largest pools of money. I mean, of course, first we've had the insiders, the early adopters, right? But the early majority is not going to be poor people. The, the early majority is going to be big, large pools of money, right? And so then as the time goes on, They'll build out the system and it'll become more accessible for everybody else. Um, I mean, it is accessible to everybody else, but most of people are followers, right? They, they follow what the, I guess, cultural influencers do, right? But anyway, so that's the dollar. Let's take a look at oil. I saw oil pumping a little bit this morning at $91. So this is a West Texas Intermediate. And I did post a chart about this in Telegram this morning, and I have this kind of curve on the chart that shows how we went from a high down to like an upper range. I believe that, you know, th this is going to come up in the, one of the articles I read, but, you know, I don't think oil is going to $300 a barrel. It's, um, it's going to be range bound just like the dollar, if you will. It's... Um, as the economy slows down, as we go into global recession, 
oil demand falls. And every year that we go forward, more technology comes out to do things more efficiently. And so there is going to be more supply or cheaper supply and less demand in the next, say, call it two years. All right, so that's oil. Let's take a look at the 10-year. 10-year is a little bit red on the day. I didn't post that this morning in Telegram. I'll do that right now. And for those guys listening on the podcast after I put it out or on Rumble, um, if you go to, this is episode 256. So if you go to E256 at BitcoinandMarkets.com, then you will see all these charts I'm talking about. So this is the 10-year, a little bit red on the day, lower high. So we'll see what happens here if it does roll over and go back down into the Fed funds range. Remember, rates are in charge not the Fed. Rates are in charge, not the Fed. If the rates fall, the Fed has no choice but to pause and pivot. All right. Um, what else do we have for charts? Let's take a look at stock market. Gap up this morning. I'll throw this chart in there as well. Excuse some of the arrows. That Those are old. I need to delete those. Um. Gap up this morning, still red. We'll see. We'll see how this ends. But so far today, it's it's a good day for Bitcoin. Good day for stocks. Uh, the dollar is selling off. So overall, that kind of sums up what we're seeing. All right. Um, what do I have next? Okay, Telegram posts. What did I post about on Telegram? So obviously, the guys that are in Telegram know all this stuff. <laughs> uh, but it's good to just talk through it. So I did post a chart of the from mevwatch.info. And this is the website that looks at these OFAC compliant blocks from Ethereum after their merge. And it's up to 72% are regulated blocks. It, it's it's I don't think saying OFAC compliant is good enough because people don't really understand what that means. These are regulated blocks that are being produced by proof of stake. That means all unregulated activity won't be happening. At least right now it's OFAC compliant, but these are this OFAC compliant block, which was a, a blacklist, right? Of, of addresses and things that you weren't supposed to process their transaction. Um, this OFAC is just a, the first like layer of censorship and who knows what's coming next. Right. So that's why I would call these regulated blocks because they are open to regulation and 72% of blocks now on Ethereum are regulated, uh, which is kind of crazy, kind of crazy. We'll see. Look, has it affected price? I haven't looked at the Ethereum chart in probably weeks. Um, let's go to the ETH BTC. And for some odd reason, it is going up slightly against Bitcoin. Um, it's coming into some res long-term resistance. I'm not even going to post this chart for my Telegram, guys. I'm just going to say it's coming up against resistance. It is kind of going up a little bit against Bitcoin, but uh, we'll see where that leads. I mean, these are like these regulated blocks. They kind of cap the innovation that can happen there, right? Because that innovation will be regulated against. And it might not happen right now. It might not happen immediately. Um, 
like somebody does some new unregistered security on top of Ethereum, they're not going to be clamped down on until probably years later, but maybe months later. Um, and so, and the big guys won't be able to get into it, right? Like Andreessen Horowitz and these other things, they are now being probably really careful with the tokens that they get involved with. And so some this, I would call it a supply chain of uh, scams is being disrupted by this. So we'll see how that develops. What else on Telegram? All right, this BRICS reserve currency. I, I posted this image from Twitter and it shows that they are coming out with a BRICS reserve currency and I'll just read this out. So what is a reserve currency? A monetary asset used for trade and store value generally used by only banks and nations. BRICS nations announced plans to create a new reserve currency for trade within member nations. I have to make it bigger. Uh, goal is to support trade outside dollar systems seized by U.S. dollar reserves by U.S. government highlighted risk of storing wealth in a sovereign currency subject to political sanctions. Um, so this is some more details about the currency itself. Currency will be a basket of member nation currencies weighted to GDP and assets. In addition, assets held by member nations could contribute to the allocation they received, approximately 20 assets like gold, oil, commodities, etc. Digital currency exclusively for cross-border payments, not used by citizens. Okay. Concept revealed by Sergey, somebody, Russian economist. Okay. Well, <laughs> my response to this was like, hey, let's take five crappy currencies, put them together, and voila, you have a now some supposedly great currency. Of course, it's not going to be a great currency. Um, most likely it will be dominated by the lowest common denominator, the worst currency. And out of this bunch, I would say that's either Brazil or Russia. Uh, Brazil has had historically high inflation rates and Russia, even though a lot of people recently are saying, you know, that their economy is doing so well relative to the West during this conflict in, in Ukraine. Uh, it's just that Russian, the, the Russian currency hasn't changed its, its uh, performance, but it is, you know, 15, 20% inflation year on year, every year. So it's one of these crappy BRICS currencies. Also, it, it does mention here, of course, that it's going to be used for trade between these countries and like um, for cross-border payments, not used by citizens, so not remittances. But first off, I would say that this forces them to hold a portion of their reserves in this crappy BRICS reserve currency. So they won't be holding it in U.S. dollars, right? This is an opportunity cost. So they're, the stuff that they're holding for this BRICS currency, they can't be holding for other trade in the world. Plus, who who's their customers? Okay, yeah, sure. These they these countries, uh, China has a very large GDP. India is fairly big. Brazil is fairly big. 
but they're not that big. I mean, all of them together probably are about the size of the United States. Um, so their customers are U.S. And, and Europe. So the ones that they're trading with the most are the U.S. and Europe. But for some reason, this crappy secondary reserve currency is going to benefit them. I, I really don't think so. I think it's it's just going to hurt their economy through the opportunity cost of not holding dollars. And also perhaps this will add some sort of pressure to sanction these countries. You know, and I'm not saying that sanctioning is good. I'm saying that this is like a logical conclusion. I mean, if you if you go up to a playground and you punch somebody in the face, you better be prepared to get punched back. And so if they do this, they're opening themselves up to the same restrictions that are being put on China with uh, a lot of these trade wars going on. These BRICs are inviting, and, and Russia, of course, they're inviting these same sanctions onto Brazil and India and South Africa. And that's not good, right? A lot of people say, oh, it's okay. We don't need the U.S. We'll just trade with each other and stuff. Yeah, right. Good luck with that. The U.S. and its close allies are 50% of the global economy. You're just going to cut yourself off from that. So anyways, that's what I have to say about that. Uh, what else do we have here? There was a good appearance of Doomberg on this Wall Street for Main Street podcast that I used to listen to all the time with Jason Barak. I have not listened to it in a while, but I saw that Doomberg was a guest on there, so I wanted to listen to this episode, and it's pretty good. So I linked to that in Telegram. I'll link to it in the show notes to this on the podcast and Rumble stuff. Um, what else do we have? All right. So apparently... I'm getting mixed messages out of China and you guys know me. I've been, I pay close attention to what's going on in China and this new YouTube channel that I recommend everybody subscribe to. She is, her name is lay and the channel is lay real talk. And she has really great insight, I think on China. And so she's gone through a couple episodes here of what's going on with Foxconn. She draws the lines between Foxconn and other competitors. So Apple has all these suppliers in China, right? Um, and they're trying to promote competition in China. They don't want to just be held captive by Foxconn. So they're trying to diversify within China to other manufacturers. And now I just heard also to Indian companies, uh, and Taiwanese companies. So they're, they are trying to diversify quite a bit. Um, but some of these companies, like there, there was a, co a company called LuxShare. LuxShare, it's a Chinese company that does some sort of, I think, AirPods or some manufacturing for Apple. And one way that they got into the business was they just simply bought out their competitor. And that competitor happened to be a Taiwanese company. And I think Foxconn is a Taiwanese company. So there's a lot of this political stuff going on that's ruling over business, right? Business is taking a back seat to the politics of the matter, to the Taiwan-China pol political show here. And also the, the commie nationalization trend that's about to happen. She also talks about Tencent 
and how they went into a, uh, what do you call it? A cooperative deal with some other company, but that company is a state-owned enterprise. And she said that back, go if you go back in time in China, that that behavior, exact behavior, foretold nationalization of a company. So things like Tencent could get nationalized. And it, the, the steps being taken right now are kind of making people think that's about to happen. But so that's kind of bad news, right? But now on the flip side, we see that Hong Kong has loosened their uh, quarantine restrictions and their flight restrictions. Now that there's been a lot of leaks this morning that China is going to do the same thing. Everybody has been waiting for the zero COVID uh, to end. And so that they, you know, they're just piling in, they're piling in. And I think this is very dangerous for people. They think, they still think that China has a super, um, you know, bright future. So they just, the minute, they're, they're just waiting. If the minute zero COVID is over, then they're going right back in. They're investing heavily into China, but they're going to get their money taken. Okay. They're going to be destroyed. If this wave of nationalization is correct, which I tend to believe because I know communists that they will, that that's, this is what they're going to do. So anyway, I, I think this is a great video. Of course, I link it in the telegram and I think people should, and I'll link it on my show notes. Uh, so everyone should check out that video. Um, so anyway, that, that was the stuff about why maybe the markets are pumping today because there is this hope of zero COVID ending. That's really the only thing I can, that I noticed that was a big change. I mean, we had the jobs report numbers come out and they, they uh, exceeded expectations once again. But of course, when you dig into the details, I saw some reporting that it was mostly um, low paying jobs and temporary work, you know, like bartenders and waitresses that, that those are the jobs that are really booming. It's not like the high paying professional jobs that are booming. So it, it's a, it's a mixed bag um, with that. And if the job numbers are showing good, then people will think the fed will continue to tighten. If the job numbers are showing bad, then they think, okay, well, we're coming towards the end of this cycle and the end of the tightening cycle, and we're going to pivot. So they're digging into the details here. And I, I hate that. I hate that that is what it has come to, um, that everybody is watching the Fed. The Fed is the only game in town. They're just reading the tea leaves and betting and trying to front run the herd. You know, FOMO in, FOMO out. It's kind of crazy. Um, okay, let's take a look at these two articles. While I'm pulling these up, I'll just do an admin note. So guys listening on Twitter spaces, hey, what's up, Kent? Um, welcome. This is Ansel Linner, Bitcoin and Markets, live stream on Telegram and Twitter spaces. I'll open up the mic at the end for Telegram people, so I recommend everyone listen over on Telegram. Um, but I also am p- putting these up on my podcast feed and on Rumble for everybody. So check that out. Subscribe on Rumble. Subscribe on the podcast. Uh, just look for Bitcoin and Markets with Ansel Lindner, and you'll find it. All right. 
let's get into these two articles. First one is from Adventures in Capitalism. I think it's Cuppy from Twitter that is at least one of the writers. I don't know if he wrote this exact one, but um, this is one of Cuppy's blogs here. And the title is The Fed is Fooped, Part 5. So uh, I'll just start kind of on the second paragraph because the first one is fluff. Now, let's try a thought experiment. Imagine the OPEC that OPEC pulled back on their production and sent oil to $300. Given how tight the oil market currently is, it wouldn't even be that hard for them to achieve this, given how annoyed they are with Biden and Powell. It's easy to see how they'd want to do this and prove a point. Meanwhile, the rapid spike in oil prices would dramatically increase OPEC's revenue, even with fewer barrels sold, making you wonder why they haven't already done this. All right. Well, oh, geez. So he's making this argument that if OPEC pulled back their oil production, prices would spike to 300. What is the result of that? It's going to stimulate everybody else's oil production. And yes, right now there might be some sort of, uh, you know, short-term limitations to that with regulation and other things. But if if it stayed at three hundred, are you kidding me? Imagine the the political backlash right now that we're feeling in the United States from it spiking to one hundred and twenty and coming down to ninety. Imagine the political backlash if it got to three hundred. Biden would be impeached almost immediately. Like if it went to 300 and stayed there for a month, he'd be impeached. And with the new <laughs> Speaker of the House going to be a Republican, I mean, that he's third in line or she third in line. And hey, impeach both the president and the vice president and you get the Speaker of the House in that's going to be a Republican. So no, they... It's, I don't know, it's it's just so crazy for people to think that it can go to 300 and stay there for any length of time without any sort of response. Plus, they, OPEC, you know, they might get an immediate benefit. So they get a benefit for a week or two or a month, but they destroy their customers. They destroy, it's demand destruction. That's why they haven't done it, because they know if they put it to 300, the the global economy would crash immediately. And, they, you know, the demand for oil would be cut in half. So that's why they haven't done it. I mean, it's it says he says here making you wonder why they haven't already done this. I mean, you shouldn't have to wonder. Because if they spike it to 300 and keep it there, the economy is over. And it will also incentivize more people to pump oil. You know, one thing that Soviet, uh, Saudi has been doing for the last 10 years, they constantly are attacking U.S. shale. They're constantly attacking U.S. shale by trying to push down the oil price to get it under profitability for shale. I don't know if you guys have followed that. Um, but like when shale first was getting going in the U.S., I think it had like a maybe a $75 a barrel um, break even. And so the Saudis would try to put it at 70, 
right? And then, then as the technology got a little bit better for shale and they could uh, break even at 65, then they tried to push it down to 60, trying to attack U.S. shale. And at every turn, that's what they really tried to do. And COVID came around and they really tried to, they thought that this was going to be the death nail of shale, that they, uh, shale, that they could uh, push the price down quite dramatically and keep it there. And all of the U.S. producers would go out of business. But of course, that didn't that didn't work. Now, this is the opposite. If they try to pump the price to 300, I mean, you're just going to make Western oil companies a whole lot richer and able to go out there and find new reserves and create new oil wells, you know, do some offshore drilling and stuff like that. I mean, it's just bad for the long term um, market share of OPEC. It's bad for the long term market share of OPEC to put the prices up to 300. All right, let's continue reading. And I think it's just kind of funny to even talk about this, even have this uh, thought experiment, because uh, this isn't, I don't think this is really serious. So at $300 oil, the U.S. economy would collapse. Yes, sure, inflation prints would go parabolic, but with the rest of the economy in freefall, the Fed would be forced to stop chasing the CPI higher. In fact, I'd wager a healthy sum that in such a scenario, the Fed would dramatically reduce interest rates and flood the market with liquidity. The Fed would effectively ignore the inflation mandate. So uh, he says in this paragraph, CPI higher, which is correct. That's the correct use of the term. But then he says their inflation mandate. And I know that the Fed interprets their inflation mandate as meaning CPI or PCE, whatever they're they're using, a price index. But that's not inflation. Okay. I think this, if this happened, this would just solidify in people's minds that this isn't really money printing. Right. And when I had Andreas Steno on the show on FedWatch about, well, it was Fed Day, September 21st, he came on the show and he was like, man, maybe Japan is the one doing it right. So everybody is tightening at this this time because they're fighting quote-unquote inflation, which is not due to money printing, right? So they're, they're fighting inflation by tightening rates, thinking that this is going to help. But maybe Japan has it right because they are doing the opposite. They are actually continuing with their QQE. They're continuing with these the yield curve control. They're continuing with with all this stuff. Maybe they have it right. They, they don't have it any more wrong than, or they don't have it any, yeah, more wrong than anybody else. I think they're probably on the right side of this. So if this scenario happened, I mean, all Powell would have to say is that, you know, we understand that CPI is going higher, but it's not due to money printing. It's due to this uh, supply chain stuff. And it will just get, wake people up to this fact. This is not money printing. That kind of reminds me of a, a meme from this morning that I posted in Telegram with that girl dancing in front of all the guys, you know, the NPCs, Lojack, I think is his name, doing all the money printing printers. And uh, it was from the account uh, Memeing Bitcoin. And it says, quote, no one saw this coming, end quote also the internet for the last 10 years. And then it shows this dancing meme with all these low jack printers. Well, 
do they realize that they were wrong for 10 years? They were wrong from the great financial crisis. There was very, very low actual CPI increases. Even though we had this record quote unquote money printing, which wasn't really money printing. They were wrong for 10 years. And then all of a sudden we have lockdowns and supply chain disruptions and war and sanctions and trade wars. And we get an 8% increase in prices, at least CPI, 8% year on year. It might be cumulatively, I mean, CPI in the last, since COVID, maybe you could say it's been 20%. But 20% when we've had, when we locked down the global economy and we put like all of these ports on lockdown and stopped all the uh, trucks and we, we stopped all the, the international trade. We locked down the world and there's all these supply chain disruptions. And now you're getting some price increases. I mean, people, it's, there's a long way to go still for people to understand what's happening. All right. They think it's due to money printing. Oh God. Anyway, let's get back to this article. I have a hard stop about five till the hour. So we'll see how far I can go. Usually on Fridays, I try to just go a little bit longer. So usually other days I try to keep it to 15, 30 minutes. Fridays I can just wander off and say whatever. So, okay, let's keep going on this. Now, what if oil didn't go to 300 due to OPEC? What if oil went there because our president has joined and end of days economic suicide cult (laughs) with a bizarre carbon obsession. The oil price spike would be the same, yet the cause would be different. In this self-inflicted scenario, would the Fed chase oil prices, uh, sorry, chase oil higher and continue raising interest rates to fight inflation? Or would the Fed bail out the economy? Every investor needs to answer this question and answer it correctly. As the range of outcomes is too extreme if you get it wrong. If the case cases of the oil spikes are different, will the response be different? Or causes, I guess. I think we're about, uh, we're about to play out this experiment in real time over the next few months as the SPR releases end. Right as China reopens. All right, so... That whole thing, I mean, SPR, yeah, I think it might have had a marginal effect on prices, but I really don't think it had that much effect because OPEC has been missing its quota for a very long time. Um, Like pre-COVID, remember, pre-COVID, global demand for oil was over 102 million barrels a day. Earlier this year, demand was about 99 million barrels a day. And I think that's going to decrease as we go into global recession, energy demand will go down. As people learn to, like in Europe, people learn to um, use less energy, right? They learn to use less energy by putting their thermostat down in the winter and taking showers every other day or whatever they're recommending for them to do. Use a, Use dude wipes, you know, to take your your daily little shower. Um, people are learning to use less energy. And so uh, 
as the economy slows and as people use energy more efficiently, I guess you could say, I mean, that's, that's just going to drop demand even more. So we could come into a scenario, even though all of like the, the EIA and uh, other places are estimating a rise of 2 million barrels a day in demand over the next year. What if we go down by 2 million barrels a day? What if it goes down from 99 to uh, 97 or even 95? I think that's very likely. And he says here, as China reopens, well, that is with the impression that China's economy is going to boom again. There might be a temporary demand boost, but China's economy is crashing. It's net, it's, it's peaked. So anyway, let's continue. The investment choices in front of you are quite different in terms of how you answer this key question. Sure, you're going to ride oil into the supernova, but when you switch investment horses, which one do you choose? What will Jay Powell do when oil hits 300? <laughs> so they're just like saying this is a given that's going to hit 300. Uh, if you aren't fixating on this conundrum, you're going to be paralyzed when it happens. Uh, does he detonate what's left of the economy by hiking rates? Or does he stimulate like a lunatic? Okay, so also on this question is he's not going to hike if rates go the other way. If rates go to zero, so oil goes to 300, right? Rates go to zero, like the the short-term rates even, uh, long-term rates continues to fall. Maybe the 10-year goes under 1%. Are they going to really raise rates to five, six, seven, eight, nine percent? Why? They would just expose themselves as being unrealistic and being absolutely worthless. Of course, they're not going to do that. If rates dive, the Fed must follow, or else we get rid of the Fed. We end the Fed. The Fed dies. That little place in all kind of traders' brains and investors' brains that that where, you know, Jay Powell has, uh, he's living rent-free in all their brains. He moves out. Now the Fed has no power. The mythology has gone away. So he's not going to keep hiking rates. He is not in control here. And this says, or does he stimulate like a lunatic? Well, they're going to stimulate at some point, right? If they follow rates lower, they're going to stimulate. But that doesn't cause inflation because... Reserves are not money. Reserves are non-fungible bank tokens. So none of this matters. I can't believe Cuppy would write this. Okay, let's go to the next story. This is from the Of Two Minds blog. And I wanted to read through it real quick because it was put out on Zero Hedge. So it had a wide distribution. And just show you like kind of what people are still thinking out there. So the, the title is The Era of All-Powerful Central Banks is Over. Well, of course. The era of all powerful central banks is over for a simple reason. They failed. They failed their citizens, their nations, and they failed the world. Their policies have pushed wealth and income inequality to extremes that have destabilized the planet's social, political, economic, and environmental spheres. As I have endeavored to explain for many years, this is the only possible outcome of the central bank dominance. Um, once finance becomes the primary mover of everything else, 
then it distorts everything into a skimming machine that benefits the few with excess, uh, with, sorry, with access to central bank funding at the expense of everyone else. All right, so he has this conspiratorial mindset that the central bank, and he believes in the central bank. He believes in the central bank. Like <laughs> that Jay Powell is living rent-free in this dude's mind, in his two minds. Cause he says he's of two minds. So of course, if you think the central bank is all powerful and you bow at the awe of the federal reserve, yeah, this is what you're going to think that they've messed everything up. But once you, <laughs> once you see that they don't have any power, that this is a natural consequence of credit. As I've said, there is in a credit cycle or in, in a, a credit-based system, as debt becomes more burdensome and less productive, only the more credit-worthy people and credit-worthy use cases of that money will get credit. And they must get credit or else the entire system starts to collapse. So that new credit is funneled directly to the these same people that he thinks the top 0.1% the top 5 uh, fortune 500 companies to government those are the most credit worthy people at the end of a credit cycle when the debt burden is high and the pro debt productivity is low and this is Hallen's razor Okay, uh, you guys probably know this. Hallen's razor is an adage or rule of thumb that states, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. Or I guess you could, <laughs> maybe I mix that up with, um, I always think of this as um, don't attribute to malice or don't attribute to central planning what is adequately explained by natural forces. So maybe that's just another way to say it. Maybe I'm thinking of a different uh, razor here. <laughs> Tell me in the, the chat, guys, if, if I'm thinking of a different razor. But this is what I think of Hallen's razor as is um, never attribute to central planning like the brilliance of the central planner, which can be attributed to natural forces. And that's what this guy is doing here of, of Two Minds blog. He is attributing to the brilliant central planning, or not brilliant, but uh, successful central planning. And we all know the central planning is not, does not work. But only, pe you know, people that understand that central planning doesn't work, the only central planning that they think does work is when the, the Fed does it right? The Fed is really good at doing exactly what they want. No, of course not. The Fed is powerless. It doesn't work for them either. And once you realize that, then you know that then you, the dominoes start falling down and you see that this is, this is just crazy talk. All right, let's continue. Once finance, but I do agree that finance, financialization takes over, but not because of some central planning, but because of natural forces. Okay. Once finance dominates, then both the market and government become servants of finance. I say markets because once markets have 
been finan- uh, markets in scare quotes because once markets have been financialized, they serve the interests of cartels and monopolies to cease to be markets at all. Government, regardless of the advertised brand, becomes an auction where the highest bidder gains control of governance and regulation, which are bent to serve the interests of the few with the access to central bank largesse. Not central bank largesse. It is credit from the banks, not central banks. This is a bank-centered system, not a central bank system. So they don't have access to the central bank. They have access to banks, to bank credit. You know, when credit becomes tight, then only the more credit-worthy people can have access to that credit. So that realization kind of blows this whole thing up about government, regardless of the advertised brand, becomes an auction where the highest bidder gains control of governments and regulation, which are bent to serve the interests of the few and with access to bank central bank largesse. All right, let's continue. As the charts below illustrate, this is the top 0.1% with a substantial trickle down to the top 1% and top 10%. The bottom 90 have lost ground, not just economically, but also politically and socially. I agree, but not for the reasons he says. The way central banks create and distribute credit, money, slash money, results in the dominance of finance. And this dominance has led to the distortion and ruination of the economy and society. Okay. I agree with all that. I do. I think that the financialization does distort and lead to bad outcomes socially, economically, politically, uh, financially even for most people. I agree with that. But it's not because it's a grand conspiracy. It's a natural outcome of the form of the money. And this guy would probably agree with me. I mean, halfway, because I'm sure he's a gold bug. It's the form of the money that naturally comes to this conclusion. Everybody knows it. The boom bust cycle, the business cycle. You have an expansion of credit, then you have a contraction of credit. But what happens if the entire system, the entire thing is credit. The entire thing is malinvestment. It all needs to be liquidated. And that could happen with sound money to backstop the collapse. But when you have a pure credit-based system, you have nothing to backstop the collapse. This is an experiment. Like, The credit-based system is the experiment. We knew what would happen. We knew the business cycle happened. We knew credit expansion happened in uh, boom-bust cycles. We knew this. I mean, as a species or as people. Um, But yet, somehow we let this credit-only system be created and build up the world, flood the world with credit. To the point where you're stuffing it down the throats of these emerging markets. You're stuffing it down the throats of the CCP over there in China. I mean, everywhere. Everyone's pockets are stuffed 
every orifice of everybody in every place in the globe is stuffed with credit and it can't collapse. It's a form of the money that has led to the financialization, the, the degradation of society, the degradation of politics, the rise of spoiled brat ideologies, which I call mainly socialism, but um, Marxism and communism and all this. The only reason why those things have grabbed hold of our society is because of the form of the money and the ability to expand credit. They thought to infinity. But it turns out that the productivity of new debt is a diminishing return. And we have gotten to negative numbers now. And there's no stopping this. I mean, they can kick the can, but there's no way to grow out of it. And ever, you know, people I've always said, um, mathematically impossible to pay off the debt, yada, yada, yada. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's true. But that doesn't mean it's going to collapse. They can kick the can. All right, let's continue with this. Um, Central banks are the source of destabilizing inequality. No, they're not. They can't fix inequality. Well, that's correct. As long as finance dominates markets and governments, they won't be able to fix inequality either. Central bankers and government authorities are aware that the system is unraveling due to the extremes of inequality they've created. They have not created it. Uh, the government has created some, yes, uh, but not the central banks. They are attempting to reconcile this contradiction. See, it's a contradiction, buddy. It is a contradiction. Finance turns the entire world into a skimming machine that can only exacerbate inequality with, yes, what else? Finance. Uh, so central banks are preparing. So it's not a contradiction if you see it as a form of the money. It's only a contradiction when you try to attribute this, these, this, all of this, uh, it, these ill effects to a central planner. Okay. Then it becomes a contradiction. So central banks are preparing to deposit new money directly into checking accounts and governments are pondering windfall taxes, wealth taxes, etc., to claw back some of the wealth that accumulated in the top tier to fund social programs designed to keep the masses compliant. Central bank gaming of finance, uh, sorry, central bank gaming of finance is the source of instability. I mean, when you are so obsessed with the central bank. You cannot correctly identify the problem. And these same people have incorrectly identified the problem and been incorrect on all of their like assessments for so long. But what do they, then they come up with these ideas of manipulation. They come up with these ideas of uh, irrationality. The market is irrational. And it's, uh, it's being manipulated. That's why I haven't been right for uh, two decades. They're aimed at the wrong thing. All right, let's continue. Reigning in central banks, free money for financiers and cronies is the necessary first step to unseating finance as the dominant force in markets, governance, and the planetary skimming machine finance has created. I would say not reigning in central banks, but uh, changing the goddamn money changing the form of the money. But this is not something that we can do 
as a dictate. It will not be dictated to us. Just like the euro dollar system, which is the credit-based system we've been talking about here, that's bank-centered. That was a natural, naturally evolved emergent process, emergent system. It solved Triffin's dilemma before or as Triffin was speaking in front of Congress, the market was already solving his Triffin's dilemma by creating a pure credit-based euro dollar system that could expand seemingly to infinity at the time. But of course, we all know that we've come to the end here. So what's the market naturally chose that because it routed around the problems. And it was an era of peace. Sorry, guys. One second. Has someone just come to the door? All right. Sorry about that, guys. Somebody came to the front door. Um, yeah, so that, that's my long rant for the day. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to open it up to guys on Telegram to make a uh, comment or a question. Just keep in mind, I only have a couple minutes here before I have a hard stop. So um, Mike is open to the guys on Telegram. While I'm waiting for that. Of course, I'm going to link to all of these in the show notes and uh, check out the Rumble. Just search for Bitcoin and Markets. Check out the podcast if you haven't. Subscribe to both. Give me a, a like and a listen and a watch. I appreciate that. Raphael, what's up, buddy? You got to un. Okay. So um, the credit is uh, expanding and contracting, right? That that cycle. Um, do you see the transition to Bitcoin uh, in the contracting uh, phase or expanding phase? Oh, great question. Uh, so to relay it to spaces, um, I'm just going to mute you because I'm getting some feedback on there, Raphael. Um, the good question. His uh, he's asked if in the expansion and contraction of this credit system, where do I see Bitcoin really advancing in the expansion or the contraction? Because what we've seen so far, right, is that in the kind of weaker dollar periods, that's when Bitcoin has done the best. And during the tight, the tightest times uh, for the dollar in Bitcoin's history, Bitcoin has done poorly. Um, and I, I do kind of expect that cycle to continue in a way but as you notice we have higher highs and higher lows on all of these cycles for bitcoin so even if bitcoin only expanded during the periods of loose dollar liquidity and contracted during periods of tight dollar liquidity we still are making higher highs and higher lows so that, there's that part but overall i think that bitcoin where bitcoin is really going to shine is when we it it becomes more and more apparent that we're going to a multipolar world and international trade like there there's a lot of distrust between these multipolars or multipoles and you need a neutral settlement currency right in the past that was gold but gold is second best to bitcoin now so i th i think that uh if it just continues before this awakening of people that Bitcoin is this neutral settlement money for a multipolar world, 
until that realization hits, we're still going to have higher highs and higher lows. So I hope that answers your question, Raphael. All right, guys. Sorry, I have to cut it off here. Hard stop. So I appreciate everybody listening. Check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Check out the new channel on Rumble Podcast. And also make sure if you're listening on Spaces that you subscribe to the Telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. And everybody have a great weekend. Spend some time with friends and family. You know, turn off the charts. Um, and we'll see you on the next one. Bye.